happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 191. Nine away from 200 episodes here on September 3rd, 2020. Uh, my name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the beautiful University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me, as always, Good evening, Dr. West Fryer. It's great to see you tonight. Good evening, Jason. It's great to be here. And uh, we had our little hiatus last week. So this is one of those episodes where there's going to be double the amount of links and, not, you know, still about an hour to, to talk about them. So um, any any thoughts, uh, Montana? Let, let's do a little quick weather, a little quick, you know, fire What's your, what's the situation? You're glad to be not living on the West Coast directly in the path of, of fires, I assume. Um, yes, because very you guys much correct. Are affected, but not nothing, nothing like some of these brutal pictures we've right. seen. Uh, last week, really terrible smoke. And, you know, it was kind of gross. Um, you know, not, uh, well, some, I heard some people comparing it to like, 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 uh, campfire smoke, but it's really not because the smoke that's in the air and a lot, cases burned up, you know, things that were not meant to be burnt in nature. And so the smoke is pretty uh, acrid and uh, didn't smell super great. And it was really thick here for uh, almost two weeks. And then last weekend, uh, Saturday in particular, we had uh, basically a 12-hour rainstorm that uh, washed a lot of the gunk out of the air. And so that was uh, very thankful to have that. Uh, it was hazy again today in Missoula, which I think is also West Coast fires. But luckily, a few of those fires are in Montana itself. Weather-wise, uh, fall weather is here now. Uh, highs this week in the 70s, lows in the 40s and 50s. We've not had a hard freeze yet, and that uh, for Montana gardeners is a real blessing because it allows you to, you know, take your pumpkins and carrots and other late season vegetables and let them uh, get nice and ripe out in the sunshine. Um, but that's the weather here. How about where you're at, sir? <laughs> Man, we're pretty fortunate. So no, no real hurricane impacts or, or fire impacts, just kind of watching the rest of the country and giving thanks uh, for being in, in the Midwest. So it's been um, pretty lovely. And the, um, you know, normally a late October is when we when we start to to get our first freeze. So, um, you know, I don't think I think our summer heat's over, but it's just it's really nice. Like, you know, warming up maybe into the into the seventies or touching the bottom of the eighties and then down to the fifties. So it's pretty nice. I I love the fall. We got pumpkins on the porch and squirrels aren't living in our house anymore, but they're back to chewing them up. So you know when. Those are the problems with, uh, you know, pumpkins chewing or squirrels chewing up your pumpkins. You know, you're going to count your blessings. So, Yep, absolutely. Well, this show is not about the weather. So, Wes, why don't you tell the fine listeners what EdTech Situation Room is all about? This is an, an excuse, an opportunity for Jason and I, along with Peggy George, almost every week to be synchronous, it, it, not in the same place, but at the same time. And what we do is talk about, and, and it's an invitation, obviously, to anyone because we're live on both Facebook and YouTube, talking about the past week, or in this case, past two weeks, uh, technology headlines through an educational lens. So we do have some favorite topics and some themes that appear in the show from week to week. And you can check out all of those links at edtechsr.com slash links. And on that note, Dr. Neifer, where would you like to begin tonight's foray into our recent headlines? Well, uh, I, I have kind of a philosophical one I want to start with tonight. And I think that it's more or less uh, what I'm hoping we can get out of it tonight is a bit of a challenge to our federal, uh, fellow educators that are dealing with the global pandemic. But there was this great article a couple weeks back from The Guardian, and it really is, I think, a, a, a fair bit of warning about what's to come. And the article is from Jeremy Farrer, who uh, writes an opinion piece in The Guardian to talk about, like, listen, we need to start being realistic about the end of COVID-19. And he talks about the, well, the many challenges that, that could be to come in regards to getting rid of the after effects of COVID. But it's likely that the first generation of COVID-19 vaccines will, will be what he calls only partially effective. It is very possible that the vaccine itself could not be a permanent vaccine. It may have a, a limited immunity effect from 12 to 18 months. Um, that doesn't diminish the urgency of 
trying to find a vaccine, but instead he wants to you know temper people's expectations about what's to come and that doesn't even begin to talk about what it takes to get, you know, a seven and a half billion, I'm sorry, you know, that's right, seven and a half billion, uh, uh, vaccines distri- manufactured and distributed around the world. Um, it, it also, uh, the trust factor in vaccines that even if you are otherwise not questioning the efficacy or safety of vaccines that you might do so if you perceive that the vaccine process was rushed in any way. There's a lot of stories about that in the national news media that we have to be careful about pushing too hard on the vaccine gas publicly because we want to make sure that whatever vaccine candidates are safe and people feel like they're safe. And the reason why I want to mention this in context of our show was that I have seen a lot of uh Social media, and I, I've seen some references in newspapers uh, and and t- television stories about how schools are dealing with COVID. And there is, I think, a, a an, an overwhelming notion that this is a semester long or a year long problem, or even a year and a half long problem. Where I think it may be longer than that. And one of the things that that I like to think about. Very early on when I took over uh, or took the job as, as as first curriculum director and then now my title assistant director at the Montana Digital Academy was, you know, people telling me about how online learning is not in a very effective environment. And I have to say that that argument still rages on in research. There's very little actual gold standard research, so experimental research on whether or not distance learning is as effective as face-to-face learning. The general evidence suggests that on average face Face learning is more effective than distance learning, but that's only on average. And I would argue personally that I've seen a lot of pretty effective distance learning classrooms. I've also seen a lot of ineffective uh, face-to-face classrooms and that what we should be doing instead is striving to make these environments the best that we can. So I guess the the, the point of what I want to make here is that, that looking at the scientific evidence, yes, at some point, this is going to be over with. And yes, at some point, schools can go back to more normal scheduling and set up for kids. But it may be a long time. It could be six months. It could be 12 months. It could be 18 months. It could be 24 months. It may be years before we widespread effectively uh, have what things look like before March of 2020. And so I guess I would just like to see the discussion nudge towards, you know, let's make the best of the learning environments that we have because we might be stuck in this for a while. I agree. Absolutely. We've been having those kind of conversations at school as well, thinking about how, you know, we're, we've survived this transition. Um, we were talking before the show, no, no one knows what's going to happen, but we've <clears throat> been back face to face with kids for over a month. We went back August 14th uh, and I'm teaching six, six sections of students and it's been it's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I'm fortunate that you know my largest class. I have I have uh, 13 students. Um, that's a that's a real blessing. But the conversations that I'm hearing and the things I'm reading indicate that you know everyone is expecting that flu season, regular flu season, is going to be getting underway. We're all going to be moving inside. I mean, this is the reason why the the annual flu uh, does spread the way that it does is because it gets cold in North America <clears throat> and other parts of the world. And we end up you know, spending a lot of time indoors and um, that's, you know, what lets the, the, the flu spread the most. So I think that um, to your point, I'm hearing, and, and not just, just reading on articles, but hearing parents, you know, and some teachers just really lament where we're at and that we just have to get back to, to normal. And I, that is just that the normal is going to be new and it's going to be different. I'd say one of the, the greatest concerns that I have here was uh, with regard to teacher workload. Uh, there's a, a teacher that has resigned that we're, we're you know, know well uh, in Oklahoma City public schools who have just returned face to face. Most most of our di- public districts have had a period of remote learning and then, you know, you know, going back. Um, but I can say just from personal experience and observation that the amount of hours and the level of expectation on teachers today is absolutely, you know, it's huge. It, it was high before and it's even more now. And so I think it's really incumbent upon educational leaders to be keeping a good pulse of that. 
I am encouraged by stories of some larger districts where teachers are being designated to be remote only teachers. And so the, the individual classroom teachers not being shouldered with <clears throat> this really forbidding responsibility of trying to both keep students who are at home, you know, up to date and, and learning at a, at a high level of engagement along with face to face. And so, you know, I think we're going to want to continue to collaborate and share best practices, but we're also just going to have to flat out look at how many hours teachers are, are spending doing this. And, you know, what is this going to be doing, uh, you know, to, to our teacher cadre and, um, there, you can only be burning that candle at both ends for so long and everybody has limits. And I, I suspect as we move further into this, it's, it's going to go back to the conversations we had, Jason, at the very beginning where we talked about wellness and we talked about boundaries and we talked about how, cause we're, we're not remote learning right now, my wife and I, but I, I predict that we will be before Christmas. And so those kinds of practices for ourselves as teachers and then for our students, I think we can be better learners as a result of this. Because what I've realized is that the self-discipline, which is required for the online environment, is honestly not something that I think, I'll just talk to myself personally, I am as as intentional about cultivating. It's just so easy when you're face to face with students to just, because I'm teaching, you know, four of my classes are, are media literacy and, and computers, you know, just show them things really quick and bail them out. I mean, kids don't have to be, in my opinion, as navigational, as independent, and as responsible for taking ownership of their own learning as they have to be in the online environment. It's really good for kids to develop that disposition, but it is challenging, and that is not something I think we've been historically as oriented towards in our context. You guys at the Montana Digital Academy, you know, different, but... Um, I, I would guess that you're probably seeing an influx of new students and probably your your situation is different and continuing to be in flux as well with, with the impacts of everything that's happening. It absolutely is. I think the, the point you're making is a really important one, which is that, you know, online learning, we get so stuck on the discussion of whether distance learning is, is, is better or worse than face-to-face -face learning. I think we get uh, that distance learning advocates get so passionate about advocating for the model that they forget that even when done extremely well, distance learning radically shifts the power dynamic from teacher to student in that the student is largely left uh, in their f physical uh, self alone to make it through learning, even if they have access to teachers via Zoom or, or Teams or Meets. In the end, the student is still largely moving forward on their own. And that power dynamic is very, very challenging for a lot of kiddos who are used to the spoon feeding of education to them um, in, in the past. Well, really, I think the trend has been over the last 30 years in, in educational models. And I think we've made it less student responsibility and more teacher and school responsibility for students to be successful and to graduate. I think that has meant lowering of standards in some cases. But I also think that a lot of kids end up maybe being content ready in leaving school, maybe test ready to leave school, but are not as independent of thinkers and then maybe more importantly, independent of workers. And distance learning really does challenge students that does not or that do not have that, that learning skill set um, as aggressively as their peers. And those are conversations we're going to have to have. One of the things we tell our parents at, at MTDA uh, that when, when we first start the semester, the distance learning is really different in that your, your kiddo needs to be more responsible, but we would rather hear from your kid and the problem that they're having than have you report to what the problem your student's having. You know, obviously there's lots of exceptions to that rule, but I want kids to put in uh, support tickets. I want kids to send in screenshots. I want kids to contact teachers and try to work out problems. And I'll always defer to a student and teacher working something out together than involving my office or a help desk or the parent or even a local support person at the student's local public school because I want kids to develop that skill set because I have a world where increasingly they're going to be asked to be more self-advocates. And I think that's something the distance learning rewards. But not every student came from a distance learning environment. Uh, uh, not every student is, you know, even older students, high school, later high school students, juniors and seniors I've dealt with students both as a classroom teacher and, and you now in my current context as an administrator in the state virtual school that frankly had very little independent learning skills. And when the going got rough, they 
weren't able to articulate a problem to someone else to advocate on their own behalf. And I'm not talking about students that struggle, excuse me, with, uh, <laughs> uh, I apologize, I have hiccups tonight. I keep sucking down water. It's not, it's not seem to be fixing it. So, uh, 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 my apologies to those, particularly those that are listening to this later on a podcast where they've got headphones on, but, the piece that I want to say is that that you know obviously there are some students that struggle with self advocacy because of of some other uh, you know uh, 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 some other reason like a learning disability. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you know uh, a, a standard uh, 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 pretty typical students that you might see in a, a junior or senior class that don't have you know a lot of self advocacy or problem sh- solving skills. <laughs> And I think we don't, we don't tend to teach those skills as aggressively as we should. One other maybe side note here too, and I'd be curious to Wes, if you see this as well. I also feel like that we still don't, or that we've really diminished our opportunity to teach kids some, some independent studying skills too. Um, I, I felt this was true going back to, to my teaching career going back 20, 22 years that, that the first students I taught in the late nineties came to my freshman, sophomore, junior class, oftentimes lacking skills that I thought were typically being taught in elementary and middle schools. And I still think they are in a lot of cases, but I think there's been a broad shift away from teaching core study skills as part of, you know, acquiring content, right? Learning how to learn. And I think that that part is also, well, I think it impacts students' ability to be good distance learners. All good points. Uh, Peggy George in our chat room uh, makes the good comment that, you know, um, you know, te- teachers and teacher burnout is definitely an issue and a concern because of how much teachers are being asked to do. And in terms of your point on the power shift, Jason, that can be a great thing, but, you know, the large part, large majority of teachers, I would argue, have not had extensive uh, experiences or pedagogical, you know, instruction and professional development on online course development. There's been a rush for some of that, you know, prior to this. But, you know, designing for the online environment is really what needs to be done if students are, are working at a distance. And so it is a... A, a, a challenge and it is not an easy thing and it is not something that somebody can just flip a switch and you know say oh great we can just we'll just do this online it doesn't, doesn't work that way and developing good distance learning lessons or good digitally enhanced lessons is extremely time consuming this is not the case where you know you can easily put something together um, that that really does speak to the many needs your students may have it's it's very time consuming sounds good all right. Well, um, I propose we talk a little Apple. We had an Apple event that took place two weeks ago, just before our scheduled show that we, we um, had to cancel. And so let's take a look at a couple articles. Uh, Jason has put several in here. Um, I'll say a few words, and then if you want to kind of take it away from your perspective. Um, of course, sure. the number one question is going to be if you've rushed out to get the sixth gen Apple watch. Um, but uh, the uh, top article, I guess I'll share is um, the one that you put in from digital trends, just Apple stuff, uh, everything announced. And uh, interesting that this year, you know, and I'm glad they did this. Apple did not an- announce new phones. <clears throat> you know, Apple does so many things with so many different product lines that, Holy cow, to talk about like six different product lines or whatever from watch to Apple TV to iPad to phone to laptop. I mean, it's just, it game, you know, gaming. Uh, it, it's just, a, it's just a lot. So, um, the continued march of the, of the Apple Watch from a health standpoint, as you've talked about multiple times on the show, pretty amazing. Now that you can do the VO2 level, uh, just additional insights. I really <clears throat> am convicted. <laughs> I want to publicly commit to this, you know, just as far as more, more health and wellness, more fitness. We want to talk about ways that technology can be transformative. You know, Jason, as a, as a kidney transplant uh, survivor, you know, can certainly speak to that idea that, you know, technology and the monitoring is, is literally life saving and life changing. My favorite part of the keynote, and I did watch the entire event uh, afterwards on Apple TV were the stories that they share that people are, are sending in about how they were alerted in advance to, to high, you know, 
um, pulse, uh, high blood pressure, uh, some other condition, and then the way in which that was able to, you know, be the catalyst of getting to the doctor and the hospital and, and getting help. And so I think that it's just a wonderful thing that Apple, which of course is wanting people to use their technology, use their devices. And there's a lot that goes with that. I know we'll talk about some tech correction, media literacy articles tonight. There's, there's a, a plus and a minus to the use of technology, but I really, really love how Apple is having such a big push in the fitness arena because man, let's face it. We all need to be, not only eating well, but exercising and depending upon your situation, you may not, you may or may not, you know, find yourself in a place where there's lots of external encouragement for that. So, you know, human encouragement, human accountability, all those things are important, <clears throat> but technology uh, nudges and especially the way in which you can be in touch with your body and have a better window into how you are doing. I just, I think that is exceptional and that was the most exciting thing. So, other kinds of announcements about, you know, iPads and um, other things. But uh, it was to me, it was just sort of the continuation of the trajectory that that Apple is on. And I don't know that I, I heard or saw anything that was was very earth shattering. So what were your thoughts and responses to the event and the announcements, Jason? Well, I know a lot of excitement on behalf of my Apple friends about iOS 14 which was released and downloadable after the event was over with. And I know that uh, almost everyone that I've talked to, very excited about that as a prospect. A lot of new interesting features there. The iPad Air and the new uh, uh, regular iPad, obviously the updates there are pretty great. I did read a lot of stories about how that there now that the iPad itself, uh, the regular iPad, which is, you know, the budget iPad, if you could call um, the entry level one of budget iPad has got the A12 Bionic chip, which has a 40% boost in performance over the last generation of iPad. That's a pretty big uh, performance boost. But you start to do the, the spec bumps here and uh, think about from a, uh, at least a spe speed standpoint. And I have another article I want to share in a moment that, that kind of questions that notion. And the entry level iPad, other than it, it only has 32 gigabytes of storage is a pretty attractive uh, a piece of hardware because of its size and the fact that you can get third-party keyboards and turn it into a laptop-like experience. I will say, I'm going to bring in a couple other quick articles here. Um, the CNET did talk about a little bit on, on September 15th that, that the older iPad model did get a nice spec bump that it really needed that will make it more attractive on the market. However, there is another uh, pretty interesting article from The Verge on September 23rd that talked about how the plain iPad, so the 2020 iPad model, even with a spec bump, uh, kind of loses out as a, what, what they said, it's not good enough for remote learning. And the idea is, is that uh, because of uh, some lacking of the advanced features the iPad Pro brings and the iPad Air models uh, bring to the party, and also the fact that you can't do as much multitasking um, on the regular iPad as you can with the iPad Pro and the other advanced iPads, that it makes it worse for wear for, for, for distance learning. So this is not the $300 iPad. It would not be a great option for your kids to be able to do that. And I have to say, I have a bit of that experience myself in serving students or helping out on a help desk that serves our students across the state. We don't support iPads in delivery of, of distance learning classes. we If you want to do it yourself, that's totally fine. We will not stop you from doing so. But what students have told us that the pretty lackluster file handling inside of, of, of iOS uh, is a real problem. Um, Flash used to be an issue, but with Flash dying on December 31st of, of 2020 this year, that's less of an issue. Although I will say that we have a couple of vendors that are waiting until about, uh, I would say, 11 p.m. on December 31st to finally push over to HTML5 and other technologies that replace uh, that. But also the fact that the Chrome browser on the iPad is relatively low feature and mobile Safari, which is what you would get on a regular iPad, is also uh, uh, not necessarily a full browser experience. And it does impact your ability, I think, to engage in the kinds of, of activities that would be useful in a distance learning environment. So again, uh, interesting uh, trends, but I will echo one other important 
thing you said, uh, Wes, that the Apple Watch continues to impress. Uh, the SE, which is their low price model, uh, does not have as many of the health features built into it. That's reserved for the newer models. But to be honest, because uh, the Apple Watches tend to go down in price a little bit, both from Apple and then you can buy used ones, um, you know, two or three years old that have a lot of those health features in them. You know, if you don't need health features, maybe go with the Apple Watch SE. If you do, buy a, a model or two back and you're still going to get a pretty great watch. Absolutely. And one quick thing I'd say that is, uh, you know, certainly on a personal level, uh, great insight into all these things. All of our sixth graders at school now have brand new Gen 7 iPads. We're waiting on the Logitech keyboards, which do dock on the side and yep. I think are going to be really, really great. <clears throat> and But we've got the Logitech Crayon Stylus, which is about 50 bucks, but really offers basically the same sort of functionality as the Apple Pencil. So I was able to do a sketch noting, uh, start a sketch noting unit today. Very excited about being able to do that. First time to ever be able to have a whole class of students with new iPads and new, um, you know, styluses, uh, you know, to be able to do that. But we're, we're having little wonky issues with Google in terms of when something's been submitted and, and it's unsubmitted but we can't go this file and we can't edit this and having to work around and, you know, let's delete the slides app and let's open it up in, in Safari because iPad OS, you know, should be better and different kinds of things. But this is, we're in a testing year right now. So sixth grade is going to be having iPads through the end of uh, December and then seventh grade is going to get them. And I don't teach seventh graders, but these same kids then will go back to Chromebooks. And so the fifth graders I teach have um, older Chromebooks and it's really great. I mean, Having used these platforms for a real long time with a continued march of technology and how things improve, it's it's really good to have an in-depth, we're using it every day kind of insight into how this works and how would we want or would we want you know this to be our daily driver. And I, I certainly think that we're going to continue to see this evolution in terms of function with files, with apps, with the mobility capability or the, the browser capabilities of the of the Mac. I think that's one of the most exciting and positive things is, you know, Apple really trying to embrace the the full web on the iPad. Um, and so, you know, all of these things are, are really, really positive. And maybe Jason, and I don't know that we have an article about it. I really want to know more about the uh, styluses and how that experience is working on the Chromebook side of things, because my personal uh, perspective is we've got to have a very effective digital stylus to be able to be fully digital with, with our lessons. I just don't think you can ask math teachers, you know, to just yeah. have, take pictures of kids, you know, paper and pencil work or, or whatever. So anyway, just, just a few thoughts. So one other now, quick, one other quick article. Yeah. That just is uh, news. And, and, and I'm not sure if, if this crossed your radar or not Wes, but in iOS 14, Google has now set up the Gmail app to be the default mail app on iOS 14. So on your iPad and iPhone, if you have iOS 14, you can now utilize, um, uh, you can now utilize uh, the Gmail app instead of having to deal with, and I've always thought the mail app uh, it, it was dire uh, on iOS. I mean, it was fine for the first couple of years, but then they clearly needed to update it and they didn't. And I, you know, feel like now this is this is a good sign for folks that that yeah. are on in Google World and on an Apple device. And whatever device you're using, whether you're on an Android device or, or, or an iOS device, you know, having the open opportunity to to use any kind of app developer's best work, uh, not having it blocked, not having it banned, not having it crippled. I mean, we've had years of that with Microsoft, where Apple always had you know kind of inferior sorts of of uh, products compared to Windows, as far as not fully featured you know desktop versions of Microsoft Office. And so it's great that Microsoft is embracing this, you know, work on any device. Here's here. Here are our tools. Um, right. And then, you know, we're a Google school and I foresee us remaining a Google school uh, indefinitely. I don't I don't see anything right now pushing us to to do something different. So really important that all those tools work and glad, you know, both from a school standpoint and a personal standpoint to see that uh, interoperability and and Apple not trying to just force us, you know, into their apps, but, you know, letting us truly have the, um, the most native Google-ish experience, if that's what we want with email or with calendar or whatever we're doing. So, 
All right. Well, where to next? We're about halfway through the show. So uh... already. Well, um, I have some Chrome OS news I want to share a little later, but let's jump into it. Looks like you have a, a couple of or several great articles on the tech correction. Yeah, so it's kind of challenging to know uh, whether how to categorize these because, I mean, I've got some stuff under the China category, the media literacy category, uh, but definitely some important tech correction stuff. So let's talk elections a little bit. Uh, then let's talk about Twitter and Facebook. So The Verge on September 17th announced that Twitter has rolled out new security features to, quote, prevent election day chaos, which doesn't that sound like that would be positive. Um so with regard to security, they are really pushing two-step verification, uh, security prompts, locking the ability of folks to uh, change passwords and, you know, not wanting, for instance, let's say uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden's Twitter account to suddenly switch hands, you know, right at election day or, or right before or something like that, uh, or any candidate for that matter. This isn't just talking about top level executive uh, folks. Um, and so Twitter's also, uh, it says, reworked its content policies, rolled out new features to help users find reputable information. Um, this is good. This is positive. Again, we've talked about this. These, this is an example of companies doing things on their own to self-regulate because they don't want regulation. They don't want the tech correction. And so, um, I'm glad to see this, but, but ultimately I believe this is, this is insufficient and we're going to need to see, uh, some regulatory change, uh, similar to the kinds of consumer protection regulation that we have and, uh, information regulation with regard to television and newspaper and magazine and mainstream media. Um, we've just seen social media get a free pass from that for a long time. So it's good to see him taking these steps. I'm glad it's being proactive. I think it'll be too little too late and we're still going to just continue to see the weaponization of, of social media, um, to, uh, subvert elections and probably, you know, sway, uh, sway and throw elections in, in favor of disinformation and, the organizations and individuals who can best use psychological operations and um, in, in some cases, not even hacks. It's just using Facebook, which is the perfect storm with micro targeting for being able to, you know, show the specific group that you want to target the message that you want. So I'm a little pessimistic there <clears throat> on the Facebook front, Washington post. This is from, September 22nd uh, reports that Facebook deletes several fake Chinese accounts targeting Trump and Biden in a first takedown of its kind. So uh, that is positive. But uh, what this article goes on to say is that the activities of these groups, and this is primarily in Russia, um, in, this was in China, but there's also op, you know operations in Russia and Iran, uh, are very active in other places like the Philippines. I mean, this is this is not, this is global in. Scope. So this isn't like a U.S. phenomenon having, um, you know, social media platforms, unfortunately, leverage to really benefit, uh, in a lot of cases, some some very right wing and very authoritarian uh, individuals that want to either uh, seize power, maintain power or push their specific agenda uh, politically uh, when it comes to, um, you know, their region and their country. So, um then I'll, I'll just I'll just whip through these and then and then uh, toss it back to you. This is super interesting. This was Vice on September 21st. Facebook threatens to pull out of the EU if it doesn't get its way. Now Vice tends to have maybe some more I don't know in your face articles or I don't know. It's it's it. I would I don't know if you would consider it mainstream. I mean it's legitimate. It's not somebody's backyard uh, or, or you know garage uh, publication. Um, but, uh, there, and, and I think they've got some good journalism that, that comes out of, uh, Vice. But this is a very interesting article about European regulators and their crackdown on data. And what this is suggesting is that we really are at a point of risking of the, this fractured internet, right? Where China has their different internet and the United States does and, and the, and, and EU does. Uh, Facebook, at the end, they've got somebody quoted to say, oh, this is brinksmanship. They'll never go through with this. I mean, Facebook has the resources most likely to be able to comply with this. Uh, but what, what the EU is arguing is that, you know, Facebook should not be able to simply port all the data it's collecting about Europeans and throw them over on U.S. servers and do whatever it wants with it. It's really a challenge to the surveillance capitalism model of not only Facebook, but all the leading platforms. So, you know, with our elections and COVID and fires and hurricanes and everything else that's on mainstream media here in the United States, that may 
may not, or even with social media, that may not be something that's on folks' radar screens. But <clears throat> what we've seen happen in Europe with the GDPR, the General Directive on Privacy Regulation, uh, we really don't have privacy rights, especially with respect to our, our data here in the United States at all. Europe is leading us uh, in the West in, in, with respect to that. And so uh, this is really uh, important stuff to track. And I, you know, I would say I hope, you know, we don't end up with a completely fractured Internet that's broken and we can no longer communicate globally. Um, but we are, I believe, going to need to have regulation. And this is where Europe, again, is leading the way and pushing for that. So the very last article I put under tech correction uh, is actually from March of 2020. And uh, a shout out to Zach Gilbert, who is Ed Gamer on Twitter. And I had a chance to meet him several years ago in Chicago at the ICE conference. And anyway, uh, he helped, he helped convince me to play Minecraft with my son. So, you know, really a great, great thing to be convinced to do. But Zach reached out via Twitter and shared this TED radio hour, uh, presentation. And this is from, uh, I think it's from March. It might have been May. It was, it was definitely before the summer. But it's called I uh, in real. It's called uh, let me get the title. Uh, IRI online. So this is in uh, or maybe that's supposed to be IRL <laughs> in real life online. I think is what that's supposed to be. And it's a collection of folks who've spoken on the TED stage, but talking about wow, how we're becoming transhuman with our screens, but all the sides to this. And there's an exceptional part of that, which is an interview with Edward Snowden. And he truly is an important voice for us to listen to with respect to the insight which he he had and he provided into the activities of governments with surveillance and and privacy issues and all of these kinds of things. And it's exceptional. So that particular TED Radio Hour podcast, which is like an hour long, is going to be the subject in December of the media club for the, um, the, the Institute for Digital Literacy that I've participated in the last two summers. And I'm actually going to facilitate that on December 7th. So it's a ways away, but just a super fantastic podcast, almost like a geek of the week kind of thing. But I put it under tech correction because it really speaks to a lot of these kinds of issues. So Jason, do you think the tech correction is imminent? Are we going to see, you know, decisive legislation in the United States giving us privacy rights and really ending all these problems, like maybe before the election in a couple of weeks? No, <laughs> that's the entire tweet. No. Um, so, you know, I, I am encouraged because the discussions look way more nuanced than they did four years ago. Right. That's, that's part of where I, I find, or I, I figure that, that, we're making progress because these are no longer, um, you know, fantasy scenarios that social media can have d danger to it. We have a lot of research and proof about this now, right? And so when you talk about, you know, attacks by less than than than, than friendly characters from countries that aren't on our our, our uh, Christmas card list, that's something that is, is is something we need to be concerned about, but. I'm not entirely convinced that self-regulation works. I also have no idea what government relation or government regulation looks like here either. The other thing that also scares me, and we talked about this when we first started talking about the correct tech correction a couple of years ago. If you listen to Senate and House hearings that that pull in leaders from these technology companies and ask them about regulation, it's also um, not uh, it, well. It, it I wouldn't say scares me, concerns me that people that may not utilize or even understand social media in a, in a nuanced way would be writing these regulations. So for me, I, I really sincerely hope, and I know that 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 vice article, uh, and I almost put this article in, in, in the show tonight, but uh, apparently Mark Zuckerberg had referred to some of the vice reporting in regards to Facebook and the challenges Facebook uh, faces in the United States and abroad and, and actually made fun of the source, but the fact of the matter is, is that we have to continue to have these discussions. I sincerely hope that social media does not have a, like a, a, a terrible impact on the 2020 election like it did in the 2016 election. I'm not saying that, that Facebook is the reason why one person won or another person lost, but certainly they did contribute very mightily to the very sour and bitter fights that happened after the 2016 election was over with. 
but we need to continue to talk about this. We need to continue to be thoughtful about our own use of these technologies. And then bringing this back to education, we have to be thoughtful about how we talk about these technologies to kids. And that's the part that I still think is largely missing. Um, you know, it's not, it, 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 for me, it's never been about yes, Facebook, no Facebook, yes, TikTok, no TikTok, yes, Instagram, no Instagram. I don't think it's that at all. I get a lot of joy out of Facebook. I get a lot of joy out of Instagram. It, even though it's the joy is more recent, I get a little joy out of TikTok too. The interesting community that's developed there is 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 pretty entertaining. Uh, Hank Green, who is a popular science YouTube star, uh, comes from Missoula, Montana. So he's a Montana guy. Uh, he said on Instagram the other day that uh, he was able to get 1.8 million followers on TikTok. Um, uh, it, it just in the last couple of months. And he said it took him until now on Twitter to do that, right? That it's obviously place where there are eyeballs and a lot of young and impressionable eyeballs. And if we could harness those technologies for good, I think that's going to go a long way to deal with some of these problems, but I hope we can continue to have nuanced conversations to talk about where we're going and maybe what to do and how to do it in regards to both self-regulation on behalf of these companies. And then what I think is inevitable, I think we both think is inevitable, some sort of government regulation about these techs. So yeah, Peggy's saying she thinks social media may, may have, or she says it is going to have even a bigger impact uh, now in 2020 than in 2016. Um, that would be, pretty scary. I, I think it's a little bit like the JFK assassination. Like, I don't know we'll ever have a definitive, you know, the, the election in the United States was thrown, was, you know, definitively pushed by uh, disinformation campaigns. And even if, if it was by whom, you know, by what, what group um, it's, it's a, the, the waters are very, very muddy. <clears throat> I didn't put this in the show, but there's, this is, Maybe we had it last time. The Social Dilemma. This is the new documentary on Netflix that Tristan Harris, uh, who is the co-founder of the Center for Humane Computing and uh, the former design ethicist for Google. Fantastic, like absolutely great documentary about a lot of these kind of issues. And one of the things that really drives home is that we're going to have pluses and minuses, you know, but there's been huge miscalculation and um Un, a non-awareness of the unintended consequences of social media by the folks who invented the like button on, on, on Instagram and on yeah. Facebook and the folks that, you know, invented the newsfeed. It is, I'll, I'll put it in um, the, the, the links, the social dilemma. If you haven't watched it, yep. you're on Netflix. It's an hour long, well worth your time. And so, you know, it's just, we're going to continue to have the, the, the positives and the negatives because these tools are so powerful. And it's like, I think they say in that documentary, it's like dystopia and, and utopia at the same time, right? Because being able to connect with family and just have a, a real sense of the pulse of other people's lives and in a very positive way, being able to have these micro interactions that would absolutely not be possible if we weren't all connected to a global network. I mean, if I'm just out there trying to write on my blog, there's really not that many people who are going to be bringing that up on their device, but social networks as they have come to be developed today, that they can be free for people and we can be trading our, our data and our privacy and our information for these services. You know, it's created some really wonderful things, but the idea that people can, you know, craft messages. This wasn't from the social dilemma. I think this was just a conversation, but someone was talking about like gossip in the, this is probably an article in the old days. Like it just didn't, it didn't move far beyond the borders of the town, right? Maybe someone got on a horse and then they were going to another town, but you know, gossip and the kinds of things that people tend to really enjoy talking about and sharing, um, it was just really limited in its impact. And now the velocity and way and, and speed with which it can be uh, shared and, and the degree to which it can be amplified um, and our lack of, of ability to rein that in what the social dilemma says is that has potential to be an existential threat to our, you know, I, to, to self-government and to uh, a lot of human values. And, you know, it just, it, we're going to have to get on top of it. And what they say is that we will have to have a popular uprising. We're going to have to have people finally come to realize privacy is important. This data is important and we've got to assert rights, but they say that's, that's a long road and that's not going to be something that's going to happen quickly. And I think that 
is is an accurate statement. So we're in for some tough times. And back to the flip back to the COVID stuff. In fact, let me hit an article here that relates to that because it talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, anti-vaxxers and, and folks that are uh, wanting to reject, you know, the idea of uh, taking a um, taking a vaccine even when it comes out. This is the Anberg Public Policy Center on September 21st. And the headline is belief in conspiracy theories is a barrier to controlling the spread of COVID-19. And so, you know, conspiracy theories have been around forever. Uh, there was a great, it wasn't Ted Radio Hour, but it was a uh, fresh air. It was, a, it was an NPR podcast that was talking about conspiracy theories throughout time and looking at like the American Revolution and the Sons of Liberty and the ways in which, you know, England and this really apocalyptic presentation of what they were about to do, you know, fed into to what happened in terms of, of, of the, the, the American Revolution. <clears throat> this was a study that was done. Um, actually, I think before the summer, it goes back to, um, uh, a few months ago. And what it found was that if people are, are believing in conspiracy theories, and I guess this was from March to July, uh, 840 us adults on the survey panel. Um, basically those folks are going to be more likely to, uh, reject uh, a vaccine and they're going to be more likely to not wear masks. And I think that some of the freedoms that we have in the United States and the West are really making us they're putting us in a situation where it's harder and it will be harder for us to get out of it. Because if we don't have lots of people wearing masks and able to really, you know, take these fairly draconian steps to lock things down when we have a, a spreading uh, virus, um, when we've got people who refuse to take a vaccine and want to encourage others to reject that as well, that is going to hurt all of us. And to your point, we started with Jason about how long is this going to go? It's going to go longer because of this interplay of social media and psychology and, you know, the ways that we have freedom in the West and that's great. But look, I'm going to just be totally frank and honest. One of the things I have seen here in the, in Oklahoma where we live, unfortunately, is there's a lot of folks that are, are just, they're not really smart when it comes to, to some basic things like accepting, you know, the consensus of scientists and medical professionals and believing that they know better. And it's a case where we really do need state officials to make paternalistic decisions for the good of the group. I mean, you go out to rural Oklahoma, we went out to Wellston where there's this amazing barbecue place. And I met a guy, he, he drove all the way from Pueblo, Colorado to get barbecue. This is a very good barbecue stand. <clears throat> you know, you just don't see the mask wearing like you do in the city and you don't have the mandates. So it's sort of a perfect storm for a lot of difficulties with elections and also a lot of difficulties doing things like taking the kinds of steps that need to be taken to get rid of a pandemic. So your thoughts? Well, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I have seen some references to the fact that this social media really just amplifies where a lot of people were anyways, but the affirmation of what would be corrected by tradition mainstream news media sources is absolutely part of the problem here. Right. And, you know, Facebook has, has been a, a bit of a trial for me for that because I do see people spreading information that has been clearly debunked. Right. And not me smugly saying it's been debunked as in like, I double checked my own sources, right. Found a variety of sources to do things, um, used good uh, civic reasoning to, to research these things. And the bottom line is, is that, uh, you know, it, because people can't seem to, to make the, the, the dividing line between a mainstream source and a fringe source. I'm not, and this is not aimed really at any particular political persuasion either. I see this on both sides of, of, of the political spectrum. Believing what you want to hear instead of what, what you probably need to hear in regards to facts and reality. But I guess it goes back to if we're not teaching, uh, uh, nuanced source evaluation and questioning uh, 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 both our beliefs and external beliefs, then we're not doing the right job uh, in education. So we we have to be doing this. We can't teach it like it's 1981. Uh, you have to be aggressively pursuing uh, good learning skills in regards to the mass of information in every content area in every class. And I'm going to say this. We can't 
allow ourselves to just be limited to the traditional domains of we go to math, we go to science, we go to language arts, we, you know, we go to PE, like the, these conversations about literacy and about information and about critical thinking and about uh, web literacy and media literacy. This is the drum we bang on every every week. Basically, we've got to integrate that into conversations with all teachers and with parents across the community, because these are essential skills. I really I sadly don't think we can educate ourselves out of this. I don't think we can just offer up enough media literacy lessons that eh, it's going to. It's going to solve. It's going to take a variety of solutions and ultimately it's going to involve politics and it's going to involve folks, you know, passing laws and and things like that. But it is one of the important things that we can do is to 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 try and educate and to try to to visit about uh, these things and develop skills. Right. And and it doesn't have to be anything. You, You don't have to stand on a political side. I believe to talk about critical thinking. Let, let's not let's not politicize critical thinking the way we've politicized max, mask wearing and some other stuff. Right? We all need to be critical thinkers and the and have these abilities to to weigh things and and hopefully make good judgments about what we're going to believe. Uh, let's pick up a couple security ones. You've got a, we've got two. I'll do one and then you put one in too. Um, sure. I put an interesting one. Um, first death reported following a ransomware attack on a German hospital. This was ZDNet on September 17th. And, uh, unfortunately a woman had to be rerouted from the closest hospital that she was near, uh, because that hospital was under a ransomware attack and they didn't have access to all their data. And so she ended up dying. Um, they believe in, in part, because she you know, couldn't get into that hospital right away. She had to go to a, to one that's further away. Uh, the, the group actually was targeting a university and it was it evidently was accidental that this hospital was roped into it. They were on the same network, but the article reports that ransomware is continuing to be super prevalent. Uh, the fact that folks will pay off these groups in order to, you know, get, get their data back and be able to get back online, you know, feeds into it, right? Because if criminals know that this is going to be lucrative, then it's, uh, you know, more, more incentive for them to do that. So that is unfortunate. And it speaks also to the importance of cybersecurity and having cybersecurity professionals in our organizations, keeping things updated, you know, moving data systems in, into more secure, uh, probably cloud air, you know, cloud systems that are encrypted and then also have very capable people who are watching it 24 seven. Right. I, I'm very thankful that before I got to our school in 2015 <clears throat> to be the technology director in four years, we had already been substantially on the road to, to moving to the cloud and not having servers that we were caring and feeding for locally and then trying to fend off all possible attackers. You know, we were, we, we were moving to the cloud. So, and then you put an article, Jason, I think about some IOT traffic and botnets. Do you want to do, pick that one up? Yeah. Threat post released a really interesting article on September 17th that said, that well, the headlines is, is it's not misleading, it just it kind of buries the lead. Uh, the Mosey botnet accounts for a majority of IoT traffic, and the Mosey botnet is some some malware that has been distributed to uh poorly secured IoT devices. But when they say majority of traffic, it accounts for 90% of all traffic going in and out of internet and things devices, which means that you know, nine out of every 10 bits. Um, is part of this Mosey botnet. And that tells you there must be an awful lot of bad devices out there with poorly uh, updated firmware. And then secondarily, even if there aren't a ton of those devices, they must be doing extraordinary harm. So, you know, going back to uh, many things we've talked about since, you know, IoT has really become a much bigger issue since, since we really started this podcast. We've talked about security and IoT a number of times, but using names you trust, keeping the firmware updated, uh, don't buy cheap stuff on Amazon that you don't recognize the brand name of. And then when it's old and not being updated anymore, throw it out because it's likely that security holes will be found in the various firmwares of those devices and they will be exploited. I want to pick up those China articles, but do you want to do the Wikipedia one real quick that you did on Readwrite Web? Because that sounds pretty fascinating. Yes, I thought I would get my Will Richardson on and refer to the Readwrite Web. But really interesting article about a study. And the idea behind the study here is that um, that if a Wikipedia article has, and they, they, they're doing this as an experimental study, that if a Wikipedia article has 
uh, some nice high quality photos, uh, not that, not even professional photos, amateur photos and tourist information. Small towns will see up to a hundred thousand pounds more revenue per year in small cities. And, and of course, uh, bring up the article and it's, it, uh, I've clicked on it too many times already because I've hit a paywall. But if I remember correctly, uh, a researchers in Europe actually did this as an experiment and utilized some high quality tourist photographs, uh, usually copied from other languages, Wikipedia's into smaller towns and put in, um, uh, uh, tourist information. So like interesting things in those small towns or tourist uh, attractions in the smaller towns. And they were able to spot through analysis an increase, a possible increase of a hundred thousand pounds more of, of tourist activity in those smaller towns. And folks, I, 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 I would imagine your audience is the last folks I would need to explain this to, but if you still think the Wikipedia, it's a fad, it is as a matter of fact, not a fad. <laughs> and it can be used in fantastic ways for good purposes. And it's being used by folks. So it's very relevant and very important. That was one of the, the lessons from some media literacy lessons we've been doing this year is looking at news sources and finding their Wikipedia page. Because if it's any kind of source that's out there, whether it's mainstream or not, it's going to, it's going to have a page and people are going to be talking about it. And you're going to be able to get some information and help make a judgment about whether or not you want to consider that a credible source. So that is pretty fascinating. Uh, I put a couple China articles in uh, that I'll do quickly. Uh, this one, I, I, the headline is it's, it's actually a tweet. China excited about <clears throat> TikTok proposed restructuring. I don't know if you're trying to follow this. My, my fifth and sixth graders are super interested in this because a lot of them use TikTok. And so this really has their attention, although they're not very aware of the facial recognition Social, you know, national security implications and, and all that seems a little bit confusing to them. Uh, but Lindsay P. Gorman, <clears throat> who is a journalist, uh, writes, never a good sign when Chinese media is touting and promoting the TikTok restructuring as a model for what should happen globally. What's clear is the U.S. has bumbled its way into a precedent, the consequences of which he, it hasn't anticipated. And so uh, Twitter identifies this um channel, which I can't necessarily pronounce, Wei Jin, maybe. And their tweet from September 20th said, the U.S. restructuring of TikTok stake and actual control should be used as a model and promoted globally. Overseas operation of companies such as Google, Facebook shall all undergo such restructure and be under actual control of local companies for security concerns. And again, that sort of <clears throat> portends a fractured internet and you know, a very different situation from what we, we have today. Um, and then the second article I've got in there is actually from the same author. This is why it's great to have a featured tweet, which is the, the tweet you pin at the top of your page. This article is a little older, but Lindsey Gorman uh, is a fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. And this is an alliance or sorry, an Atlantic article from January 5th, 2020. The title is 5G is where China and the West finally diverge. And one of the best things about gathering almost every week here with Jason on the EdTech Situation Room and talking about these articles is like trying to connect dots because we have these themes and these topics and trying to figure out like, what does this mean? Because, you know, just being hit with a headline um, doesn't help you necessarily get an, an understanding of a full context. And I think this Atlantic article makes a real good case of why the deployment of 5G technology and the hard push that hasn't just come from the United States and the White House, um, it's come from the United States, definitely, but it's come from intelligence agencies and a lot of different officials and bureaucrats and military personnel and folks who don't have a, a real, you know, political iron in the fire, apparently, that, that their professional intelligence and, and you know, di diplomats and, and, and other kinds of specialists. And so because we are drawing this sharp line in the sand and, and bringing England with us and trying to bring other countries in the West to say, don't deploy Chinese infrastructure, it really, it portends perhaps a very significant break in even the international system that is not just going to be limited to the internet, but it's going to be, you know, more, more broad than that. And so trying to make sense of these these kinds of issues is very difficult because there are a lot of politics, you know, going on here. Um, but we've continued to talk about 5G and about 
you know, Chinese officials under, you know, arrest and not being allowed to, to leave and, and, uh, the kinds of private, of, of, uh, spying and, and privacy issues and concerns and things like that. So that's almost a geek of the week in terms of a recommended article. But, um, I think that that's, we'll, we'll be continuing to talk about that one for a while. Well, Wes, it looks like we've made it to the top of the hour. That was sure fast. Um, what do we, is there any other article you want to make sure we get in this week? Um, well, uh, we could just do the, the Venus one, right? Uh, the, the addition to this is, I guess Russia last week claimed to own Venus. I'll drop that article in as well. Like, Hey, it's our planet. Um, but, uh, there was an exciting announcement about the detection of phosphine, which is a gas that when it's in a large quantity, um, is, is going to be produced by organic materials. So what kind of organic material on the surface of the planet Venus might be producing large quantities of phosphine? Not sure. Apparently Russia is taking over the planet. So, you know, maybe we, we won't have a chance to go, but I'm kind of thinking that may not, may not happen. Yeah. And I, and in fact, I think there are some very specific, uh, uh, UN resolutions about that very issue. Yes, there are. Well, sir, what would you like to share for, with you, for your geek of the week? Okay. I will go fast because I have several. Um, first one, my kids are loving this. It's called Little Alchemy 2. Uh, it's, it reminds me of crafting in Minecraft, but, uh, this is like the rage right now on the iPads and the, and the Chromebooks to, uh, combine materials and it, um, it, it, you know, interesting little web-based game that, that, uh, fifth and sixth graders love. Uh, the age of AI. I mentioned that there was a great November 2019. PBS Frontline special by that title that uh, absolutely recommend and just feel like it should be required watching. There's a there's a YouTube original series narrated by Robert Downey Jr. of the same name, and it's nine parts. It is absolutely fantastic, and I've only gotten through uh, two of the of the se- of the episodes. But the thing is, it does such a great job showing the positive and the negative because. If we just sit here and rant against AI and how terrible it is and surveillance, there's incredible positive stuff, for instance, in the medical arena um, that, that's being done now. And I mean, just using your smart speaker for voice recognition, there's there's so many things. So I want to commend that to people. Um, I just wrapped up a four part lesson series for my sixth graders on conspiracy theories. Uh, we focused a lot on the moon landings, uh, but we talked about SIFT as a media literacy or web literacy framework for kids being able to, you know, stop, investigate the source, trace claims um, to their original, um, you know, sources, and then the the playbook of conspiracy theory. How, and I talked about Fruit Loop conspiracy theory, and you know, how do you try to identify things that are just really out there because conspiracy theories are very pervasive and they're having a big impact, you know, on society. And then the last thing is a website that actually I'm not sure who to give credit to this because I'm following a bunch of folks in, in terms of media literacy, but this is a website called spotthetroll.org. It was put together by a couple faculty members at the University of Clemson. I only got five out of eight. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that, but it uses Twitter specifically and asks you to determine, is this a human or is this a, a troll or a bot? And, um, in the, these are real. This is a lot of this is from 2016 election. These were actual accounts. Many of them were created by the internet research agency in Russia. And, uh, this is a very good lesson. This is a great lesson because it's not only something to tell people about to say, do this, take this. And then it has excellent resources and links that you can follow to learn more. And then to try to develop your own, uh, you know, savvy and capability to identify, you know, what is legitimate and what's not. It also makes a great case of why we need to identify ourselves and our profiles, right? The kinds of things we share, not only in our, our, Twitter stream and our social media stream, but also the things we say about ourselves, um, you know, can, can be very important signals to others about whether or not we're real people or not, and whether people should listen to us or not. Well, sir, I, you know, not that I'm going to engage in one upsmanship, but I got an eight out of eight on spot the trolls. So, nice. Nice. Yeah, and I, one of them was a straight guess and I was, it was kind of a lucky guess, but it was so interesting. The rules they pointed out and, you know, the notion of if you're sharing personal information and that sort of thing. So I couldn't agree. One of the best things I've seen, uh, really in, 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 in almost a year for helping people develop an eye for what is real, what is fake. 
Okay, and then I have a really quick one. Um, I, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and guess that if you're a regular listener of EdTech Situation Room, you don't need this lesson, but I'm sharing this article not because you need it, but because maybe a member of your family does. Uh, lots of folks working at home, lots of teachers at home, lots of teachers in their classroom in a corner with their laptop broadcasting out to kids. Many of them do not know that a second monitor is one of the best productivity, uh, uh adoptions you can make. Uh, and I will say, that uh, I, I I love second monitor so much that I carry a USB-C portable monitor that plugs into my laptop uh, when I want to be productive either on the road or at the coffee shop. And um, the bottom line is, is that it's a cheap fix. Uh, you can get a great HP business monitor, 24-inch business monitor on Amazon for 100 bucks. But there is a wonderful article uh, this week in Wired, how to use a second monitor or screen with your laptop. Uh, it's probably not for you, but if it's for your you know, your uncle or your sister or your cousin or your kid or someone that needs a little boost that's working on a laptop and tired of their 13-inch or even their 15-inch screen, that's a great article to share. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the Internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. That's my real Twitter channel. It is not a robot. Uh, I am blogging now every day. Uh, as of Saturday, I just decided, hey, I think I'm going to start you know, daily blogging at speedofcreativity.org. And my lessons for media literacy and digital literacy are at mdtech.cassidy.org. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I'm on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. I also blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog at onncc.org. And I would also encourage you, uh, this Friday is the... Uh, deadline for, for, uh, presentation proposals for NCC 2021. And they're planning now for a virtual conference. So I'm really excited that, uh, they will be going virtual. It's an opportunity to meet you know, the nicest people in ed tech in the Pacific Northwest. And we're hoping to get a greater uh, nationwide audience. So blog.ncc.org. But this, whole action here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, somewhere in the middle of night, UTC. We would love if you could join Peggy George in our chat room live on YouTube or on Facebook, but if you can't, you can always download our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated or go to our website, edtechsr.com, where you can not only find tiny MP3s to download, also every link we talk about and frankly we don't talk about every single week we hope you have a great week stay safe and stay savvy we hope to see you next time on the edtech situation room good night